Welcome to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Old Chicks No Ship podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. Today, my guest and I are going to be talking about the power of women's voices. And I, I love this topic so much because I think right now in the collective, women's voices are rising and why we need to be adding more women's voices to the fray. So my guest today is Alicia Dara, who is a nationally recognized speech and presentation coach who helps lots of people, but especially women, find their power voice and put it to use in their careers and their businesses. So welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a really great conversation because I know I'm passionate about this and I know you are very passionate about this. Definitely. Um, So it's likely to be a lively conversation. (laughs) The other thing that Alicia does is, and we're going to dig into this, is she is the founder and editor-in-chief of Woman Cake Magazine, which is an online magazine for women 40 plus that features you know, inspiring interviews, personal essays, poetry, art, all brought to you with slices of wisdom from women in midlife. Another thing that I am super passionate about. And we're going to dig into the magazine as we go. But first, tell me, how did you get into this line of work? And why is it important for you to help women find their voices? Yeah, I started out in life as a singer. I come from a family of professional musicians, and I started performing on stage as a singer when I was, I don't know, four or five years old. I had a lot of training as a singer. I understood my voice very well. I understood, you know, the basics of the human voice very well. And I went to school for musical theater in New York City. And when I graduated and I moved back to the West Coast, I had a whole bunch of friends who asked me to give them singing lessons. Everybody played in a band, you know, back then everybody had, you know, some kind of singing they wanted to do. And so I did that for a long time. And eventually people started saying, well, could you coach my wedding speech or could you coach my work presentation or could you coach, you know, my son's bat mitzvah or something? And so I pivoted to public speaking about 10 years ago. I pivoted to working primarily with women. And in that capacity, I've coached CEOs, executive directors, global VPs, and thousands of career women from around the world. My signature method is power voice for career women, which we can get into as we go forward. But to answer your question, I really believe it is crucial for women to be able to find and grow their power voice and apply it in particular to their career, but across everything that we do in life, because we live in a society and we live in a framework, patriarchy, which actually wants women to to do the opposite, which is to be separate from our power and from our power voice. But I had a whole other kind of sort of adjacent career as I was going through my life as a teacher and as a coach, where I was a a feminist activist. I've been a pro-choice activist since I was 15 years old. I served on the board of advocates of Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest for almost a decade. And I put together a whole bunch of live events for them. I was a speaker for them. I was a citizen lobbyist. And I just really could see very clearly that there was such a difference, you know, being in this community of out and proud activists who were so extraordinary, you know, versus a lot of other communities where I was teaching and 
coaching and employed. And I could just see there was such a difference between women who possess a really powerful personal agency and women who don't yet have that. And I was so invested and I still am invested in helping women find and grow that agency, which comes through our voice primarily, you know? Yeah. And I love this topic so much because I think, especially for women of our generation, I think it's changed now with the next generation. We were really kind of the, you know, be seen and not heard generation, right? Like don't rock the boat, you know, play nice with everybody. We learned people pleasing from our mothers and like we stifled our own voices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I think what you're saying is completely true. I do see a lot of generational differences as well. Yeah. And thank goodness for that. Like, I'm so glad that Mm -hmm. the women of the generations um, behind us are finding their voices. I agree. I feel like it's so important for us as women in this generation of midlife women, right? So we're like the first generate, like we're different than the previous generations of midlife women. Let's put it right. that way. We're oh, yes. The charge. Yes. Right. Like we're the first generation of women to have had like, you know, big careers and motherhood and all mm-hmm. the things, you know, compared to our mothers and our grandmothers. Mm-hmm. And so as we're kind of leading the charge, we can't lead the charge properly if we can't be heard. We oh, can't so be true. seen and heard. So true. And, and I feel like we have to unlearn a whole pile of uh, conditioning <laughs> that got yeah. us to that place of being afraid to use our voices. Yeah. I'm so glad you used the word unlearn, Jennifer, because I think it really is important to acknowledge that so much of the patterns that we may be stuck in, and you named some big ones like people pleasing and putting everybody else first. So many of those things are, they come through the fabric of social conditioning, of familial conditioning, of religious conditioning, of community conditioning, of patriarchal conditioning, all of these things, you know, and much of that, that learning that we do is unconscious. It's happening almost subliminally. It so permeates our culture that it happens almost subliminally. And so to me, unlearning is a beautiful way of bringing attention to the fact that we may have not necessarily agreed to enact these directives in our lives that we're living out. It's just that they were so much a part of that subliminal learning process, which is a big part of growing up. You know, that's what we absorb as we grow, you know? Yeah. And I was thinking about this the other day, because I was thinking about it in the context of kind of the Me Too movement and what that sparked. And it was like women coming forward from like decades before that didn't feel empowered to be able to use their voices then, but now are finding that power now, regardless of if it's been 20 or 30 years, right? Which again, is so beautiful. Yes. Like, again, I feel like just we as that generation of women, we're just like, you know, don't piss anybody off. Just play nice in the sandbox. Oh, I mean, what you're saying is so true. I want to say that I think it takes so much courage for anyone who's been through sexual assault or survived sexual assault to be able to speak up. But for these women, I mean, look at what just happened with E. Jean Carroll you know, in the news for these women to be able to speak up and say, this happened. It was wrong. I don't accept this. And justice needs to be served to me is wildly inspirational. I just can't, I can't even, I agree. I mean, as a teenager, I used to like, 
I used to wonder, you know, what would it be like if all the women who actually have experienced these things, and here I will share that I did suffer from two sexual assaults before age 20. And I used to wonder, like, I used to ask myself, like, what would happen if every woman who's been through this, or really everybody who's been through this actually spoke up? I mean, it would be so powerful. And to be alive during the Me Too movement, to me, is so incredibly exciting. And almost more than anything else in our cultural landscape, you know, God bless Tarana Burke for starting the whole thing and, you know, for keeping the fire alive. And just almost more than anything else, I think that gives me tremendous inspiration. And to me, it's evidence of women's courage and what can happen when women decide that we are going to speak up and advocate, not just for ourselves, but for everybody, for each other. Yeah. And it goes beyond even, you know, the Me Too movement, because again, I was thinking about this in the context of menopause, right? Where so many women have been experiencing these symptoms who have been gaslighted, denied. Oh, it's not really happening to you. And now we're starting to see this surge of women again, coming forward and advocating for themselves in medical situations. Yes, yes. Those types of things. So it it goes so much farther than, you know, the sexual assault. Like it's literally everything. Right. The effect of it. I think that's so true. It's the effect of it, of really understanding you know, this is what can happen when women decide that we're going to speak up and advocate for ourselves. It's funny, I've been interviewing a ton of extraordinary, amazing women like yourself for Women Cake Magazine. And I'm in touch right now with some women who are physicians, particularly uh, menopause specialists. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning all kinds of things I didn't know, not just about where we are sort of right now in the kind of state of the union of menopause, if you will, but like what is possible in the future, and also a lot about where we came from. And I don't think I understood the degree to which women were actually gaslit (laughs) by the medical establishment and shut down and denied. I mean, there's, you know, I think it's anybody who does a simple search, an online search can see that if if you search for pregnancy, there's something like 19 million studies you can look at. If you search for menopause, there's maybe, I don't know, 25,000. If you search for perimenopause, there's like 6,000. I mean, I think you can see in the data available in your search engine that like something is wrong, but I didn't understand it at the level of the individual, right? That's the statistic. I just didn't get, so I asked a friend of mine, oh my gosh, I asked a friend of mine the other day, she and I are both having like some similar kind of like, we're at a similar place on the perimenopausal map right now. (laughs) So we're doing a lot of like, you know, it's just support and just kind of commiseration and stuff, you know? And I was asking her like, what did your mom say? Like, what did your mom tell you about this? She goes, you know, my mom, and she, I should say here that she has a bit of an older mom. So her mom is now, I believe, yeah, her mom is now passed away. So she is the youngest of, I think, five or six. So she was really, you know, her, her mom was older when she had her. But anyway, she said that her mother had told her that she went through menopause in one afternoon. She was like, oh, I don't really know. I went through it in one afternoon. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? Like somehow, I mean, statistically, medically, the chances of that actually happening are so infinitesimally slim, you know, like this woman was sold a bill of goods. She was told a bunch of things that she just accepted because there was no other option. And that was how she framed her experience. You know, she was like, oh, I, I just, I just, and, and really, you know, the messaging that my friend absorbed was that her mother was trying to tell her, you just need to deal with that and just keep it moving. What you know? and that's the thing though, right? Like women have been suffering in silence for since the beginning of time for God's generations. Sake. Yeah. 
generations, yeah. right? And now we're starting to see, like, I love, you know, I've had so many amazing guests on this show. And I know you've interviewed so many, you know, powerful voices in the menopause mm-hmm. space right now. Mm-hmm. There's bringing to light, like the level of suffering that we have just kept <laughs> inside ourselves without having, you know, the voice or the agency to be able to, or the confidence even to be able to just like, you know, speak it. Like, I mean, to have the conversation. Yeah, go ahead. It's my own experience with my doctor, right? Like I, you know, I didn't know what was happening to me and she definitely didn't mention, and this is a woman too, who, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, she didn't mention it. I had to go do my own research and then come back to her and be like, oh, by the way, is this possible? And she's like, Oh, well, you know, and then I was just like, it's, it's <laughs> she's like, I don't know. <laughs> she's like, maybe. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That sounds incredibly frustrating. I'm actually sort of in that place right now, Jennifer, where I'm like having these conversations with my healthcare providers. And I'm like, look, I want to do this appointment with you, but can you do me a favor and read this study that I'm about to email to you before we get there? <laughs> like, Can you just absorb the data and let me know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, I think right? it's, you know, that's, that's where we're at. I was speaking to this one healthcare provider actually for the show. She's going to be interviewed here coming up. And uh, she was telling me that in her entire medical training, so her entire medical school training from beginning to end, she received approximately three weeks of training. Oh, she's an OBGYN, I should say. She received approximately three weeks of training about menopause, like three weeks of like five, five days a week, you know, five hour classes. That's it. Wow. Because I I just read a a stat that said like something like less than 1% of all the funding allocated to women's health research is actually targeted at menopause. Yeah. It's so insane. And you said this in your Women Geek interview. It is so, it's such a huge mistake for the Western medicine, well, for all medical establishments, for the sort of larger cultural establishment, it's such a huge mistake to ignore this massive, enormous event that is happening on planet Earth right now, right? I think by 2025, more than a billion women will be in menopause. I know I'll be there by then, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a mistake. The opportunity is incredible. The, the availability of that power is so fundamental. It's right in front of us. Everybody just needs to wake up and see what's happening, you know, and it shouldn't be entirely on us, you know? Well, and I think, and this is the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you today, because the way we change the narrative about menopause, the way we change the narrative of what it means to be a woman aging in our society, the way we change the narrative about what's possible for us is when we use our voices, right? Yes. And as I mentioned, you know, like we have a bunch of unlearning to do around ourselves and Uh standing in our way. Uh So I want to ask you two questions and start with, you talk a lot about like the power voice. What is yes. a power voice? What does sure. that mean? <laughs> sure. So there's a Venn diagram that I use a lot on my Instagram to explain what I'm actually referring to. So power voice is kind of an umbrella term that encompasses three different things. And the first is really actual power skills, speaking skills, speech and presentation skills, which most of us don't get any of in our education. I've worked with many attorneys who barely got any kind of speech and presentation right. training, even though that's 
ostensibly their job, you know? So the first is just a serious set of skills that are really hard skills. It's funny to me that so many people still think of public speaking as like a soft skill, because if you don't have those skills, it can have a dramatic impact on your career and your ability to get where you want to go. So speech and presentation skills, that's the first thing. The second thing is really your presence, your personal affect, how you show up in certain spaces, particularly you know, for my clients, many of whom work in tech, law, finance, you know, biotech, male dominated industries, the STEM fields, you know, being able to show up powerfully in those spaces is so important. And that's your affect, your personal presence, the thing that is, let's say, largely nonverbal, but equally as important, right? Mm -hmm. The third part of your power voice is advocacy. It's advocacy for yourself, in my case, because I work with career women for all of the hard work that you do, for the accomplishments that you achieve, for the progress you're making. And also it's advocacy for other women, for the women around you. Because so much of what happens in women's career journey is that we get on this track, we get on this path, and it's solo, right? We're in the solo silo. And we think that's how I'm going to get where I want to go. Just head down. I'm going to work hard. My work's going to speak for itself. I don't have to worry about anything else. I'm just going to do that. And what most women find is that that's utterly ineffective. The more that we connect to each other, the more powerful we are. Again, this is what patriarchy wants. Patriarchy desires to keep women and strives to keep women separate from each other because our collective power is so strong. So when I'm teaching and coaching groups of women for companies, which I do at, you know, Microsoft is a huge corporate client for me, also Amazon and other companies. And when I go in there to work with groups of women, a lot of what I'm doing is getting them to talk to and listen to each other, right? To really actively listen, to talk to each other, to absorb each other's experiences, to learn about each other so that they can advocate for each other in small ways, like in meetings and in big ways, like in salary negotiation, where they can share information and really be able to say, I happen to know for a fact that you're lowballing me on the salary because my peers are making this, you know, so that there's a kind of solidarity. It's like a very cliche word, but it applies that there's a powerful solidarity there, you know? Yeah, I truly, truly believe that the collective power of women's voices is going to change the world. Ditto. Ditto. Like, yeah, I know. I know we're both we've talked about this before. Yep. And I know we are so well aligned on this. But the yes. fact that, like you, that you just mentioned, you know, that we have to learn how to listen to each other first before we can become a collective. Mm hmm. I hadn't actually thought about that, but you're absolutely right because we've been conditioned to see other women as competition. Oh, it's rampant. It's everywhere. I see this across multiple sectors and industries. And, and even it's the funny thing about that, Jennifer, too, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've even worked with women who believe like their perception of themselves is like, oh, no, no, no. I don't think of other women as competition. I, I think other women are great. And I say, well, when's the last time you actually like had like an offsite, like, I don't know, a drink or a coffee or something with the women in your office? Or what do you know about so-and-so's, you know, work in the company? Or, you know, who are your like allies in the company? And they, it's just like crickets. They can't really answer any of those questions, you know? Like, it, it's amazing how much we absorb this idea that women, other women are competition. And it's the exact opposite of the path that will lead to our power, you know? Yeah, because if you think about it, I mean, the reason why women view other women as competition, especially like I'm, maybe this is only applicable to the corporate world, and you can tell me what you think, is that, you know, we're all like, there's the token women at the top or the token women as you go, right? And we're all clamoring for that same space, right? Ugh. It's not me, it's going to be you. And if it's not you, it's going to be me, right? And then maybe it happens 
I don't know, maybe it happens outside of the corporate culture as well, too. I just can't think of it. I can tell you definitively that it does happen. I think there are some sectors in which that are actually more female dominated. Like I work a lot in the not with women in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, many nonprofits are primarily staffed by women. Here, here we should say primarily white women, actually, that's an important distinction. But I think that it's really that concept of the women at the very top, I've worked with a lot of women in the C-suite, really high level women at big name corporations and companies. And what I can tell you about them speaking generally is that they have achieved those positions despite the systems that they're in, not because of them. And that's an important distinction, right? So a lot of times they have made compromises and sacrifices. In fact, I, I reached out to two of my clients and I recommended you to them the other day for this reason, because they have reached a point in their lives where they have, I say this with great love, they've made so many compromises and sacrifices to achieve those positions that they no longer, all of a sudden retirement comes onto the horizon, they no longer know, to them, it feels like they're going to fall off a cliff, right? They no longer know who they are, what their worth is, what their value is, just as a person on earth, let alone as a woman in their own life, you know? So what I think about that is that it's ironic that we respect and revere and long for those positions so much because the systems around them can render you into a person who is no longer yourself, you know? And really for that matter, I think here it's important also that we mentioned we're speaking a lot in this conversation about what women can do and the power of women's voices, but it is really important to never forget that we need men to speak up in these spaces and to say, oh, and by the way, by the way, I meant to check this with you. Did you see that Forbes article that was just published yesterday? I posted it on LinkedIn. A whole bunch of female PhDs did a study and they reported conclusively, please forgive me, I'm paraphrasing, but they reported conclusively that there are at least 30 different qualities that count against women in the working world. I believe it's the corporate world. And basically, the conclusion of their study is that women can't win in these environments. They can't win. They're to something or not enough something else in 30 different ways, distinctly proven ways. And so what they did was they went on in this article, and everybody should look this up, we can maybe include it in the notes. They went on to suggest ways, right, that leaders can actually change the stuff. They really put it back on leaders. And I appreciated that so, so much. And I think that any men who are listening to this and any men who are really invested in gender equity, especially male leaders should go and read that article and understand what women are really up against. It's so important, you know? Well, thank you for referencing that. I hadn't seen it, but I am, as soon as we're done this call, I'm going to go yeah. dive into it because, yeah. yeah. And so to the point that you were making, here we are clamoring for these spots that are ultimately, and I know this is maybe a bit strong to say, but like they're part of the cause of our demise. Really. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. 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 They really are. I feel that they're, Okay. Every time I'm like in an interview or podcast, people ask me like, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the state of women and like, you know, working women in the world and corporate women? And my response generally is it depends on which day you ask me. (laughs) Depends on the day. (laughs) But I would say that overall, I am cautiously optimistic because I believe that especially through the pandemic, right, we gained a new cultural awareness of what women's real lives, real working lives are like. And the compromises that we have to make because these systems don't make it easy for us. Every time I get a new client, they come to me and they say, you know, I just feel like I'm trying really hard and the things I'm doing are not working and I just don't know what to do. And 
the thing I try to remind everybody is that these systems are not designed by us for us to succeed. They're not designed by us for us. They're not designed by women for women to succeed. So we have to start with that as our foundational truth and really see the clarity of it. And for some women, this is difficult. I don't know if you've experienced this, but some women have invested so deeply in the corporate world and in that corporate career that, that just keeps smacking them back, that keeps smacking them down, that keeps preventing them from getting where they want to go. But they're so deeply invested that it's difficult for them to look and see, well, maybe it's not them, you know, because if it's not them, then what kind of impact can they have on this? You know, if it really is about the system, how can they actually fight the system and win, you know? And so that's a larger set of questions. I mean, there's a deep self-inquiry that goes into that. There's an external inquiry, obviously a huge inquiry. And to me, the answer to that question is simply solidarity. At this point, it's really about, you know, joining your your women's resource group and, you know, connecting with mentors and, and really creating the system that we want to have. But again, that's another job on top of your job. You know, yeah, on top of the jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. So what do you think? I mean, we've talked about some of this, but what do you see from your clients and, you know, the women that you work with? Like, what's really holding us back from our voices? Here's what I really believe. And it has taken me, I'm going to be 50 this year. It has taken me almost 50 years to be able to, to frame it like this. I think that a woman's voice is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And right. And what I mean by that is that it is a biological phenomenon, meaning we have anatomy that we are in touch with, which includes the kinesthetic feeling of our voice, the way our voice feels when we're using it. Then it's a psychological phenomenon, meaning we have absorbed, right? Some messages we've absorbed some, we have judgments, we have thoughts and opinions and ideas about how we should sound, what we should say, what we shouldn't say, right? So there's the psychological part. And then there's the social part. It's basically what the world is reflecting back to us. And that greatly impacts, that greatly impacts impacts how we use our voice, our comfort with our voice, both the way what we say and the way we say it, and how much impact we actually believe we can have. I think the greatest, okay, I mean, there's, there's like a top five, but I think the greatest <laughs> impediment, speaking generally to most women being able to find and grow their power voice is probably people pleasing the instinct to people, not, not the instinct, but the, let's say the conditioning of people pleasing. Yeah. I think it's so challenging. Once women have absorbed that social behavior to the degree that we're expected to, it is a big challenge to overcome, right? To learn how to say no without apology, to learn how to speak directly without feeling like you're going to offend somebody. Every single time I give a group training without fail, it doesn't matter how many women, it doesn't matter what industry or what background they come from. Every single time I give a group training to a group of women, I go in there and somebody will say, I'm afraid to speak up and use my power voice because I'm afraid that I'll sound like I'm being angry or bitchy. And that's the psychological social part of the woman's voice, right? And what I really want to do is fall on my knees and beg them, please, 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 from this day forward, let go of that fear. But I never do that, (laughs) even though I want to. (laughs) But usually what I say is, look, I believe you have a big decision to make and I trust you to make that decision. And I try to remind everybody, it takes courage to push past 
internal conditioning around our voice, around our right to say what we want to say in the way we want to say it. It takes courage. I believe women have courage. I believe we can do it because I've seen it with my own eyes, you know? Yeah. Uh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot to unpack, but... <laughs> And I'm going to use myself as an example here, just because like, just to kind of put this into context. So I was recounting a story actually for somebody a little while ago about like my birth experience, like, you know, having my daughter and how I didn't have the voice to advocate for myself then. And I was recounting all of these scenarios. So there was that. And then all of these scenarios in my life where I ended Mm -hmm. up with this like pocket of regret and sadness, I guess, for all of these opportunities that I could have used my voice, but I didn't feel like I didn't have the courage or I didn't right. feel, you know, when the president of my my company tried to, you know, wine and dine me and, you know, things like that. And then I, again, I just would be like, okay, that's going to be bad for my career. So I'm just going to take that. Right? Oh. So all of these instances. And then I got to this point where it was almost as though, and this might be the bio part of it that you were talking about, but mm-hmm. it was almost as though my throat closed up. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and then I didn't know, and I can see it in my voice now, because the more I use my voice now, the more powerful I can see it becoming. Yes. But I didn't know how to begin to unpack that. Like I could see it in my throat. And actually, it was manifesting in yearly throat infections. Where yeah. I oh, this, wow. Like, Right. Yeah. And I kind of knew, like I had this instinct, like this gut feel. Right. Mm -hmm, And it was, mm -hmm. you know, and then when all this kind of regret was like, oh, I didn't, I couldn't speak up then. I didn't speak up then. I wish I could have Right. all of this. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. It's probably something that you see. Jennifer, it is so common. I could tell you stories. So in my project, Woman Cake Magazine, which I'm now working on, I have been interviewing extraordinary women of all different ages and every single one of them has some kind of story along the way about either a moment or a phase or a period during which their voice was simply not available. It just physiologically failed them. And inevitably, it relates to some kind of event, some kind of personal event that they went through in life. I've interviewed actors, I've interviewed physicians, I've interviewed journalists and activists and artists. I mean, I think it's universal. It comes back to the biopsychosocial phenomenon. I want to say right now, I want to validate your experience and say, it is not your imagination. It is real. And how wonderful that you've been able to find your way out of it. Look at everything you've done. You know, it's so extraordinary that you've come out. The pendulum has swung so far to the other side. You're so much more powerful, you know, than you were before. And I think that's part of the reason why you're such an effective coach is because you're a great example of those things, you know? But that's the thing. And this is, again, I think part of kind of the unlearning because, well, two things I think happen when you can't or don't speak, you know, or advocate for yourself, right? Uh Like it becomes a self-trust issue, (laughs) right? It becomes a worthiness issue. Yes. (laughs) Right. And then, you know, like that's a snowball. Mm -hmm. It really (laughs) is. It happens. Right. And then, you know, this kind of gets to this place that you referencing and I call it like the midlife abyss, like where you Uh get to this place, you look forward and there's nothing but this huge, big black hole in front of you. And you're like, what now? Like, what do I do? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in the jump off that cliff into the abyss where we have to start to unpack all of these things that have become layered on top of Mm -hmm. our voices, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. it's so, 
it's not as simple. And I know you do presentation skills and, and you alluded to this, right? Like it's not as simple as I'm going to tell you, you know, the right tone of voice and the right phraseology. No, no. Yeah, it is. Like it's so much bigger. It really is. It really is. I mean, inevitably there's a healing process. I think that women have to go through when they decide that they want to find their power voice. And when I do individual coaching, I coach groups of women and I coach women individually, just as you do. And whenever I'm doing individual coaching, I always have to be very careful to take my time. I work very hard to build a rapport with clients. And I think my reputation, you know, carries that, that clients really trust me so that they understand that I'm not here to judge them, that I can hold space for the healing process. I'm not a therapist. I don't purport to be. I think I think that's a line that should not be crossed. But when a yeah. woman is going to make a big leap forward in her power voice and in her self-advocacy, you know, she needs to feel like it's safe, you know? Right. And yes. I think a lot of times women feel it's, it's the exact opposite of the, of the message, the societal message that we get, which is that it's not safe. I mean, again, to bring it back to E. Jean Carroll, thank God, you know, she's had the courage to say, I'm going to stand up to this fear, to her own fear, you know, and be able to speak up for herself. But that takes courage. And I think it, it's a process and yeah. we just have to be patient with ourselves. You know, it's a thing I tell, there's always a thing after the first couple sessions. So there's like a six week package that I offer. And like in the first two sessions, you know, clients are really bright eyed and bushy tailed and they say, Oh, all this stuff is working so well. And it's great. And I'm having such a great time. I'm learning so much and I'm feeling this impact. And then the third session, almost always there's a slump. And they go, wow, you know, I just don't know what happened, but I just lost my courage and I don't feel good and my throat hurts. And it's like, it's like clockwork. I've almost come to like anticipate it because what's happening is they're jumping to that next level and they're going through that thick flabby layer of like all those, like, you know, all that guilt and shame and all those voices and all that stuff. They're really confronting that stuff. So there's a little regression you know, where they have to look and see, wow, I really need to go a little deeper here. And I need to be gentle with myself. And that's what I always say in the third session is, look, this is important. What's happening to you is powerful. Just allow it to happen. Allow for emotions to happen. Be gentle with yourself, make space, and you will come out on the other side. You know, sometimes it's scary, but it's okay. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, it's like the work you do is so freaking important in the world. Thank you. I feel the same about you. I know you talk about kind of the five strategies that you can use to kind of find your voice in your career. Could you share mm-hmm. a couple of those with us? Or Okay, well, I want to say here, sure. I want to say here that, you know, I work on this exercise with women in a very individual way, so I can speak to it in a very general way. Yeah, yeah. But what I would say, if you have, and, and here I will say that I think you've done this so beautifully and it's really a part of your story, but if you haven't yet done what I call an agency self-inquiry, I think that is a great exercise. So I'll give you an example. So quite often when clients come to see me, I ask them to tell me the story of their career up till this point. And I would say 75% of the time, the story sounds something like this. It'll go something like, um, oh, well, you know, in college, you know, there was a free internship that I did. And like, there was this program and I did that internship. And then, you know, the company asked me to stay around after college. And so I did that. And then I kind of just like fell into this other part of the company. And then that just sort of led to this other thing. And then I sort of maybe went here and then I did that and this, that, the other, and like, here I am, you know? So what they're saying is factually accurate, But the story that they're telling about it contains very little agency. 
So I ask them to reframe and I say, could you retell me that story and emphasize your choices, the moment at which you made those choices? And so when they do that, quite often emotions start to happen. Quite often there's some tears or there's some joy or there's some pride or some kind of burst of emotion happens because they recognize the difference between being sort of a participant in your story and being the protagonist. Like if you're going to read a novel that's really absorbing, you have to feel that the protagonist is strong. They're the protagonist of this novel. You have to be the protagonist of your story. Was it, gosh, was it Nora Ephron who said, be the protagonist of your own story? I think, you know, this is real. This is a real effect on women's lives and careers. Oh gosh. You know, and I know there's probably so many people listening because that was also my story. I mean, I kind of got to this place and I look back and realized, wait a minute, I never checked in with myself to see if this is actually what I wanted to do. I was just like checking all the boxes, doing all the things I thought I should do to get to where I wanted. Right. And so like recognizing that you have in fact given up your agency. Yeah. Yeah. For ever. First of all, it's not our fault. <laughs> like we should never definitely should not. Ourselves, definitely right? not. No, but it, I can see that as being very confronting. Like it was very confronting for me. Oh, definitely. And here I want to say too, you know, there's a, I get sort of a little bit kind of frictiony around the word victim. Clients sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. come to me and they say, Oh, I don't want to be a victim in my story. And I, I sort of say, well, you know, I recognize the wisdom in that, I think. But it's also important to remember that these systems, many of them are designed to victimize entire populations, right? Not just at the individual, but this entire population. So we don't want to discount that. But the thing that I try to remember, certainly for myself and with my clients, is that even in situations where we've been, let's say, systemically victimized, there is a degree of control that we have about the way we react to those situations and the degree of agency that we can find within those situations. And sometimes I think that's probably just kind of like a a mental state of being, you know, if you're in a really, really bad, for example, I have some clients who were coming out of really terrible jobs that they had to keep during the pandemic because they were the sole breadwinner. And, you know, they really had to, you know, the cost of living skyrocketed and they lost, you know, the housing they were in, they had to find new housing. You know, there, there are situations that women get in where the the next career move they have to make does not feel entirely within their control. And I get that. And I totally honor that. But even within that paradigm, It's so important that we recognize that there's an opportunity for agency, because if we lose the thread of agency in those situations, it can be really hard to get back. But if we hang on to that agency in those situations, that's what can really, really cement that idea inside ourselves so that we can maintain that agency across our entire lives. This is what I've seen. And I I think it's true. Which is why I think your work is so critically important for women of our generation in midlife, because we're coming to like, we're at this precipice of like, okay, what's next. And I want every midlife woman listening to this and throughout the world to recognize that she has the power to create whatever life she freaking wants. Amen. For this next, this next. Amen. Chapter. And and good God, can we just say we deserve it at this point? In life? Uh, hello. <laughs> we've done all the things. We've done all the hard things. We've done the things for everybody else up until this point. Like if not now, when? I was watching an interview with Jamie Lee Curtis, who is somebody who just. Can I just say, talk about agency. When I was a teenager, there was a movie that came out called A Fish Called Wanda. And she played, I think she's Wanda is the name of her character in the movie. But at any rate, she had 
she was like, this character was ahead of her time. She had a kind of like sexual autonomy as a character. Like she had agency. She owned her sexuality. She was like this powerful woman in this like den of thieves. I never forgot her. Anyway, I was listening to this interview with her recently. And she was talking about how when she turned 60 for the first time in her life, she started to ask herself, if not now, when? So she started a production company. She started like a nonprofit. She's doing all this stuff. She's flying around the world with all these things. I was just flabbergasted hearing her say this, you know? But it makes yeah. so much sense. It makes so much sense, you know? Well, for sure. And I mean, like, she's my role model for, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, choosing yeah. life on your terms in this next chapter, which is really yeah. what this is all about. Like, mm-hmm. we can, we no longer are confined by the patriarchy, by, you know, all of the systems of control and oppression that have kind of held us in this mm-hmm. place. Because mm-hmm. now we're in this, like, you know, I want to call it the don't give a fuck era, right? Where it's yes. like, whatever. Yes. And, I'm just going to create the life that feels really good to me. Like, yes, and authentic to me. Yes, that's the word. I was hoping you would say that. I think that there is a new understanding of authenticity that we can find at this age. And again, it comes back to that people pleasing thing. If you've spent your whole life prioritizing people pleasing as your social skill, as your sort of way you show up in every space, then finding a real sense of authenticity is going to be like your personal revolution, right? And I have seen women make pivots around the concept of authenticity. I had a client about 10 years ago that came to see me and she was in her description. She'd grown up in like a Southern church in a very patriarchal family. She was like one of few girls in like a family of like five brothers or something. Basically she had been conditioned her whole life. Oh, and she was an executive uh, assistant for her whole life. And then she'd been conditioned her whole life to please others and take care of them. Then eventually a boss recognized her potential and said, I want you to go on the management track. And that's when she came to see me. And I would ask her questions and I'd say, you know, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling about this? How are you feeling about that? And her answer was always the same. She'd say, oh, oh, fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with it. And I kept asking her, well, can you say a little bit more? And what finally came to light is that she really was so used to pivoting to other people's needs and expectations and to showing up as pleasant and pleasing to them that she had completely disconnected from what she ever thought about anything. So on the one session, I'll never forget this. I asked her, okay, let's start with this. Can you tell me one thing that you truly love that has nothing to do with anyone else that you just, it's like a game changer for you that you truly love. And she thought for a minute and she said, chocolate ice cream. And so from there, we created this chocolate ice cream principle of like her authentic power voice. And she would start saying, I'd say, well, is that chocolate ice cream or is that? And she'd say, oh, no, 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 you're right. It's not chocolate ice cream enough. You know, like somehow the metaphor got through to her, you know, it was really powerful, but it comes back to that thing you said, which is authenticity. It was the way that was the key for her. She knew that she authentically loved it. No one could take that from her. It was 100% hers. So we just went with that and it worked beautifully. It was great. That is such a powerful analogy. And I love that you kind of phrase it that way, because we can all be like, okay, even if it feels as as obscure as chocolate ice cream, there is something that we all love. And if we start there, right? Yeah. That's like the seed of the, you know, the seedling. Yeah. That's like the beginning of the inquiry. What do I truly love? Like what, just for me, what do I truly love just for me? You know, sometimes that's like in the realm of guilty pleasure, which by the way, I think is going to be 
the theme of the second issue of Woman Cake. So right now we're in the first issue, the first like issue of our theme. And I'm looking ahead toward the fall where we're going to do our second issue. And I think, so our first issue is flourishing. And you spoke so beautifully, by the way, about that in your interview. But I think looking ahead, our, our second theme is going to be guilty pleasure. Because I think there's so much richness there for women. There's so much to learn and explore in that space that's maybe like a little yeah. secret, but important, you know? I love that. And just going back to your analogy, like, you know, when I was at the kind of the beginning of my figuring out the who am I and what is it that I even want for my life kind of thing. The only thing that I knew is I wanted to go into nature. And that's what oh, I did. Oh, yes. Right? So I would like literally walk across the street from my yes. from my house to this park. And sometimes I would literally just sit under the tree. And that would yeah. be kind Okay. Of so now I have to ask you, have you heard about this concept of forest bathing? Yes. Forest bathing. Yes. yes. So I just learned about it last year. I'm from British Columbia, right? We got nothing but forests up there, forest. you know? <laughs> and I, and that's always the trees. Well, the beach for me, cause I'm from Vancouver, like the beach and the trees have always been my cells, but we have both of them in the same place where I come from, you know? Yeah. But the trees, the feeling of that trees, I, apparently it is a, it is a Japanese understanding. There's a, there's a kind of paradigm of healing that exists that has to do with forest bathing. And apparently there are physicians in Japan who will actually prescribe it for their patients because it's so powerful. 100%. Like it's part of my regular life now to go into the forest, like at least a couple of times a week. And yeah. it's funny, I was hiking with my girlfriend the other day through the forest. And I said to her, can you just feel the difference of the air amongst the trees? Like, yes. Breathing it in. Like, yes. It's like it's cleaner or it's fresher or something. Oh, you're so right. You're so, I sound like a total British Columbian <laughs> right now, but it's like it, the air is, yeah. the trees clean the air. You know? yeah. well, when you're exactly. in the middle of it, you can tell, you can tell it's right there. Yeah. You know, sometimes I'll like go into the forest and I'll find myself sighing a lot. Right. Yes. And it's like literally just like <gasps> breathing in the good, breathing out the bad. Oxygenating, right? oxygenating the cells. That's what grounding. that is. Yes. Just letting go and grounding. Right. So love it. I love the whole concept of forest bathing. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So are there other powerful strategies that you suggest to people? So, you know, we you just shared one, like sure. what else would you share? Okay. So I would say that when you start to onboard some power voice skills, you want to practice them. Mm. I have a lot of difficulty getting through to clients about the concept of practice if those clients don't come from a performance or let's say sports background. So if like me, you have an extensive performance background, if you played semi-pro or college sports or professional sports, like some of my clients did, if you have a background in politics or one of those things or theater, maybe then you are used to the concept of practice. Anytime you watch somebody give a powerful Ted talk, anytime you watch an athlete slam dunk a ball or knock it out of the park, anytime you watch an actor give an Academy award-winning speech, you're looking at thousands of hours of practice. I don't mean hundreds. I mean, thousands. I only ask my clients for like two or three 30 minute power voice practice sessions per week, <laughs> but it makes an enormous difference. I think practice is everything, not just because as with any new skill, you have to practice it to really own it. But because again, thinking of the biopsychosocial phenomenon of your voice as a woman, you have to get used to the feeling of this new power in your voice. You have to get used to that feeling kinesthetically, emotionally, socially, so you want to practice it. You want to allow all those skills to come into place. You want to allow whatever emotions are going to come up to come up during practice. So you don't do them when you have to give up and get up and give your big work presentation or your, or your meeting or whatever. So practice them really feel what it feels like. Be present in that voice, push yourself farther than you think you can go. You know, don't push yourself to the point of injury, obviously, but yeah, you know, yeah. really get used to pushing out and feeling what it feels like. Most of the women I work with, they really have never 
they always tell me they don't even really know what their voice can do. They've never really like taken Mm. it to the limit before, you know? And so that's a pretty wild and exciting thing to know, you know? Right. But you just hit on something important there too, where, you know, you talked about like, first of all, not knowing what that feeling is like, right. To Mm -hmm. use your voice and that there's emotion associated with Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Right. Can you say more on that? Like what's the relationship between voice and emotion? Yes. Okay. That could be an entire other podcast, but I will do my best. (laughs) I will do my best. Um, Here I can only speak. I want to be very clear. I can only speak in my capacity as a coach. I think that there are therapists who can talk a lot about this. I think that there are medical professionals who can talk a lot about it. But I will say from my perspective, I know that there is an enormous amount of, of emotion that can be trapped inside women's voices. Yes. And many times women will say something like, you know, after I cry, I feel like my voice releases. I feel like my voice gets louder. Or conversely, after I cry, I feel like my voice gets smaller, you know? And so there are different ways in which this happens. I'm using crying as an emotion because it's kind of a primary color emotion, you know? But there's an enormous amount of emotion there. Okay. I was going to use a different example. What I, I want to tell you a story of something that happened recently in my social life. I was having a conversation with a male friend about Dune. Do you know the, the movie Dune, Dune. which oh, is based yeah, yeah. on the novel Dune by Frank Herbert? Yeah. Okay. So there is a group of women in this uh, world, this universe, the Dune universe, particularly in the first couple books, I think, who are called the B'nai Gesserit. And my friend, my wonderful friend that I've had for many years in Vancouver, called me up and he said, Oh, I just had this revelation I want to share with you. And I said, sure, sure, go ahead. And he goes, well, it's about the B'nai Jesuit. And the thing about these women, anybody who's read Dune or seen the movie knows they have an extraordinary ability to modulate the voice so that they can manipulate others. And the protagonist, uh, Paul Atreides, I think his name is, you know, his mother has been trained by the B'nai Jesuit. So there's like some, you can see this in the movie. She manipulates people with her voice. And so my friend called me up and he said, I just wanted to tell you that I think this is so amazing. And it represents the extraordinary power of women's voices, the untapped power of women's voices. And I was like, wait a minute, dude, these women live inside a violently patriarchal society. They had to dramatically alter the anatomy of their voices. And if you read these books, you can see it's not just their voices, it's their biological functions. They had to completely warp and twist and turn their voices and their entire biological functions just to be able to have a presence, have autonomy, have power within the society. I was like, I don't advocate that women do anything like that. I don't think women need to like twist and change and warp ourselves. I think we need to twist and change and warp these systems. And he was dead quiet. It was like crickets. <laughs> and he's like, I'll have to think about that. I'll call you back. Click. You know, like, <laughs> it was that moment. Like it really brought it home to me. You know, this is anyway, just that was something that happened the other day that's still with me. But like the concept that we are we have enormous power in our voices and that we are socially and psychologically conditioned to tamp down that power means that when we tap into that power and we release that power, a lot of emotions are going to come up. I've given trainings to huge ballrooms full of like 350 women before. And when I talk about this, just talking about it, not even doing any exercises. When I just talk about it, women will start to cry because they know the truth of it. They know it. Tears of truth, I call it. Yep, that's it. The tears of truth. truth. It happens to me. Like if I if something resonates as true, it will automatically just erupt in tears. (laughs) Yes. I am the same way. 
I always have been powerful. It's so powerful. And you know, I've even heard of like women finding their voice and all of a sudden, you know, anger comes up like anger (gasps) that they didn't even. Oh, yes. Right. Oh, yes. No. I mean, I hear again, I will say, you know, there have been moments in client sessions where I've said, look, you know, I want to be very loving and honest with you and tell you that this is the point at which a therapist needs to take over. You know, I I don't think coaches should try to take that on ourselves. I think that is the function of therapists that's important. But yeah, those things can, that doesn't happen all the time, but it does occasionally happen. Those things can happen. They can come up. And I think on the other side of that, there's the opportunity for an enormous amount of healing, but you know, the struggle to get there can feel pretty epic because it is, you know, but again, courage, courage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, finding your power voice is incredibly healing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. is. So Woman Cake Magazine, I love your publication. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank Um, you. And you've been able to interview some pretty incredible women who are doing oh, yeah. like ridiculously inspiring things in the world. Yes. Like, yes, just, I have. Like every time I read, I'm just like, yeah. Like, is there like a common theme, a common story amongst <laughs> these women that you see, like that have kind of brought them to this point where they finally have found their voices and are like using them in these ways? Okay. First of all, I would like to tell your listeners that my interview with you for Woman Cake is out and they can come and read it, which will be great. Uh, you have many wonderful things to say and you have a lot of wisdom that you shared and we're very grateful to you. It was such a great interview. I loved it. I'm so glad. <laughs> I agree. So to answer your question, it's a funny thing. I'll tell you again, wherever I go, when I am interviewed about my work or when I'm on a podcast or I'm giving a talk or something, when there's a question and answer period, inevitably people will ask me, is there a common thread that somehow sort of unites all yeah. these experiences? And The thing that I can say from my perspective as EIC editor-in-chief of Woman Cake is that the common force that is shaping these women's lives at a certain point is ageism. And really, when we come down to it, it's the combination of ageism and sexism. And sometimes it's also ageism, sexism, racism, and homophobia, right? So it's all of these things. But what that really means is that these are forces that exist that are very real, that have a very real impact on our lives. Again, what we choose to do in response to that is the exciting part. And what I like about the work I get to do at Woman Cake is that it's actually not so much the commonality, but the diversity of experiences that I find so beautifully, eternally inspiring. Because women come from all different backgrounds. They come from all different kinds of education or not education. They have children or they don't. They are cis or they are trans. They are queer or they are straight. They have you know, grown up in this country or other countries. But there's so much wisdom there. There's so many ways to extract wisdom from our experiences. And wisdom is the thing. Okay, here's one thing I will say. 99% of the time, what they will say is something like, for me, and you said this in your interview too, for me, wisdom is something that that should be shared. And that's what I'm trying to do, by the way, with Woman Cake is create slowly over time, I'm trying to create a wisdom archive where anybody can go. I mean, it's made by women over 40 for women over 40 as a media source, but I'm hoping that anybody can go there and read these stories and read this wisdom that women are putting forth. And we have a very, you know, sweet, rich, delicious format that we offer. So, so we give you a slice of wisdom. We 
going to shove the whole cake in your inbox, right? <laughs> we're hosted we're hosted on the Substack platform, and so you'll get a wisdom slice in your inbox a couple times a week, and that's that's really our format and how we do it. But I mean, that slice is fantastic, right? So yeah. you're going to go there and you're going to read this interview, or you're going to listen to this thing, or you're going to look at this beautiful thing, and you're going to get this sense of this this power of this wisdom, which I think is. The word that keeps coming up for me over and over is eternal. And by that, what I mean is that I think the wisdom of women has been going on since the beginning of time, and it will go on forever. It will go on forever. As long as we continue to value wisdom. That's really why I started with Woman Cake, because I really want us to remember to hold wisdom as a value. You know, older women are chock full of wisdom. We got to value it. So incredible. And I love that you just referenced diversity as the common theme, because what I love about this, and I see this through, you know, the podcast and the women that I get to interview is that no matter the life experience that a woman has had, where she came from, like you said, had kids, didn't have kids, had a career, didn't have a career, like whatever it is, there are women who have gotten to a point where they're like, I am no longer subscribing to other people's agenda, notions, agenda, right? Yeah. I'm just like going to be true to myself. And yeah. it's like these women, as they step into their truth, their truth comes out in so many beautiful creations in the world. Yes. Right? Like, so whether I they're agree. starting a business or tackling a social challenge or a charity or like whatever that might uh-huh. be, it's like uh-huh. because it comes from a deep, authentic truth about what matters to them. Yes, I agree. Beauty of like women stepping into this part of their lives, because, you know, sharing their gift, like these are gifts that they are giving the world. Yeah, it's really true. And again, it comes down to what we value. You know, I think if we were to decide, I don't know how this would ever work, but if we were to wake up tomorrow and just decide that as a culture, all of a sudden we flip the script away from youth and innovation to wisdom and experience, older women would all of a sudden run the world. (laughs) I really believe it. You know? Yeah. hundred percent. You know, I I saw a meme the other day that got me thinking about something that I so want to do. It was like a booth at a fair, Right. And it was like, I think the the meme said something about like old coots giving advice. And it was like all these old guys sitting around in this booth and you could go up and ask them like whatever question and they would give you their advice. And I was like, how freaking powerful would that be? Like if you had women, (laughs) right? That's the thing it was missing from that would be women doing it. Well, no shit. And then you come to the booth and you can ask these women like their advice on whatever you want. Sign me up. I'll come and work at that booth for free. Just sign me up. I would love to be part of that experience. If you want to do that, Jennifer, I am here for you. Sign me up. I am here. Yeah, I'm so going to do this because I was like, how fun is this, right? I mean, I think it could be an event. We could just create an event where like, you know, I mean, it's just, we just show up and here we are world. Like ask us, this is your wisdom resource. Here we are. Have at it. You know, it's as simple as, you know, like the daughter of a friend of mine the other day was like, I don't know how to write a check. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know how to write a check? I'm like, yep. it's really simple, right? Yep. But she'd never been exposed to it before. Totally. I'm like, oh. So like valuable totally. things like how to write a check to your boyfriend troubles to like whatever. <laughs> I will tell you a story. I have a friend whose sister, whose older sister, older by about eight years, my friend is in her 50s, and her older sister just told her that she does not know how to have an orgasm. Oh, 
Ouch, yeah. need to fix that one. Yep. So I was like, hmm, maybe we should get some women together and talk this out. <laughs> you need a wisdom counsel on that one. I mean, it could be good. You know, there's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of important sharing that can happen. In fact, I just wrote a story about that. My grandmother actually also did have a friend who died without ever having had an orgasm. And that story stayed with me too. But wow. yeah, these things are important. I mean, like women, can, older women contain the wisdom for all of these things, you know? For like, just ask us, world. Just ask Ask us. Just, Just ask, ask us. us. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh my yeah. goodness. Thank you for this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. That you do in the world. It's powerful. You um, too, Jennifer. You, you too. Cake Magazine. Yeah. So where, where can people find you and your work and where can people find Woman Cake Magazine? Sure. It's my website, aliciadara.com and it's womancake.com. Woman Cake is hosted on the Substack platform. And so you just sign up and you'll get the, it'll start coming to you the next week. And if you want to take a private session package with me, if you want to hire me to come and give a talk or a training to your workplace, you can find me at my website, which is alishadara.com. Awesome. We will make sure that all of that gets in the show notes. Great. Um, So for anybody, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was an awesome conversation. My pleasure. It really was. It really, really was. Thank you so much. I can't wait for our readers to find you through your interview. It's going to be great. And to those of you listening, if you love what you heard today, it would be the greatest honor if you would leave a rating or a review, five-star review, and even better, pass this on to a friend, a sister, uh, your mother, your grandmother. Share the um, wisdom. Yeah, and start a conversation (laughs) about some of this stuff, right? Like, you know, these conversations are powerful. So until next time. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in.